Okay, why don't we start our time with a word of prayer together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for its clarity. We're thankful for what it teaches us about preaching and faith. We pray that you would help us to understand these things aright. Uh, Help us to understand and appreciate and be thankful for what you've done in our lives by the work of Christ. So hear us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so we're going to be thinking about um, the canons adored again today. We're going to be thinking about um, articles three through five of the first head of doctrine. Um, So if you're using our uh, Forms and Prayers book, you can find that on page 259. If you're using the, the hymnal, you can find that on page 897 in the back. Um, So that's what we're going to be looking at. The first head of doctrine of the Canons of Dort, Articles 3 through 5. Um, um, And these three articles have to do uh, first with preaching, preaching of the gospel. Second article has to do with, or really the fourth article, has to do with the twofold response to the preaching of the gospel, and then finally to the sources of unbelief and faith. So these are the general topics that we want to cover, Um, and these are still included in the part of the canons that's dealing with common Christian convictions. So these would have been, in their estimation, these would have been the non-controversial things that, the, that all Christians believed at the time, um, that, that everybody would sort of agree on all of, these, all of these things. I should say preaching of the gospel. We talked last time how all, all, the, all the heads of doctrine begin with common Christian convictions. Um, and so they don't mean to do anything controversial right out of the gate. They mean to be pretty, pretty standard fare. So last time we looked at Articles 1 and 2 that said, All mankind is lost in sin and trespass, is justly under the condemnation of God, and God would have done no injustice to send everyone to hell, Um, that, that everybody deserves the condemnation of God without exception. But God also sent his son into the world as a manifestation of his love and said everyone who believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. So that too, without exception. Uh, just as all are condemned, all are offered salvation in Christ. And so those are the two starting points. Um, so then the question is, well, if, if you believe in Jesus Christ and are saved, how do you come to faith? Um, how does God bring people to faith? And that's through the preaching of the gospel. We can think of Romans 10 uh, verses uh, 14 and 15. How are they to call on him whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Um, and so Romans 10 clearly teaches you faith comes by preaching. So that's not a, that's not a controversial topic. Um, we say in the Heidelberg Catechism that faith is created in us by the Holy Spirit through the preaching of the Holy Gospel. 
Um, and so that wasn't meant to be any kind of controversial thing. Where does faith come from? It comes from preaching, uh, from the preaching of the gospel that comes to people. So Article 3 of the Canons of Dort, again, page 897 in the back of the hymnal or uh, 259 of the Forms and Prayers book, Article 3 says, the preaching of the gospel. In order that people may be brought to faith, God mercifully sends proclaimers of this very joyful message to the people he wishes and at the time he wishes. But this minute, by this ministry, people are called to repentance and faith in Christ crucified. For how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear him without someone preaching? And how shall they preach unless they have been sent? Um, and so one of the first things we want to notice about the preaching of the gospel is it's, again, a testimony to God's mercy. Um, so we might say all men are condemned and God is just. He, won't, he, will con he wouldn't be unjust in leaving everybody condemned. That was the first article. The second point out that God is also loving, that as a manifestation of his love, he sent his son into the world that whoever believes in him might not perish but have eternal life. So that's a testimony to his love. And here we have a testimony to his mercy, that he sends gospel preachers into the world to preach this gospel. So the first thing we notice, or that we can say is, it shows us the mercy of our God, that he sends ministers out into the world to spread this message. Because all mankind are dead in sin and trespass, and so what does God do in his mercy? He sends proclaimers of the gospel to go into the world, to bring the good news of salvation, that God has provided a savior uh, for a people who are lost in sin and trespass, who can't save themselves, to proclaim that, that good news to the world. Um, and by this ministry, people are called to repentance and faith. Repentance and faith are the two great aspects of, of the gospel ministry, right? And you'll, you'll always hear that in the New Testament as they bring the message of the gospel of Christ to the world. What do they always say? Repent and believe, right? Repent of your sins, repent. Paul summarizes his ministry in Acts 20 to the Ephesian church by saying, I taught you of repentance towards God and of faith in Jesus Christ. That, that's the summary of gospel ministry. That's, that's the message we bring to the world. Yes, we need to repent of our sins and put our faith and trust in Christ and those who do so have eternal life. Um, if you trust in Christ alone for your salvation, you're saved. Um, you're saved from the wrath that's coming. That's a, that's a great reminder that this is a wonderful privilege that we have to bring this message. Um, I like how the, the, the canons describe it as a very joyful message. Right? It's a very joyful message that we have to bring to the world. Um, that you're dead in sin and trespass, you can't save yourselves, but God has provided a savior. Um, and it's a gift that he gives to the world. It's a gift of his love, it's a gift of his mercy, and all he says to you is to believe it. All you have to do is accept this great gift of his with a believing heart. Um, and then we, of course, say, and even the faith that we use to accept it is not our own, but a gift of, of his to us as well. Um, and so it's a very joyful message to be able to bring to the world. You can be saved from your sins through faith in Christ. Everything that needs to be done has been done by him. And what we do is just respond to what he's done 
by faith. Um, it's, it's a wonderful message that we get to bring. It's a joyous privilege to get that to bring to the world. Um, if, if, we're not, if that's not what the gospel is, as we bring it to people, a very joyous message, we're doing something wrong. Right? If somehow repent and believe turns into you know, wagging, we're doing something wrong. It's a great privilege to be able to say to sinners, um, repent and believe and you'll be saved. You'll have eternal life. You won't perish. Um, it's a wonderful privilege that we have. Um, and that's the nature of the gospel. It's a very joyous message that we have to bring to the world. Um, it also tells us something about the sovereignty of our God, right? Because the whole world needs the gospel. And so God sends gospel preachers. And where does he send them? Well, he sends them where he wants to send them, right? So this says something about the sovereignty, the sovereignty of God as well. Right, did you notice that when we talked about, when we read that, that line, God mercifully sends proclaimers of this very joyful message to the people he wishes at the time he wishes. Um, why does the gospel go where it goes? Because God is sovereign and he sends it where he will. Um, now, why does God send it to some places and not to other places? Or why does God send it at one time to one place and not at another time? Um, we don't know, right? Um, we really can't answer that question. You know, when Paul, we, we thought before we started our series in Philippians, I'm sure you all remember, but in case you don't, I'll just refresh your memory. Um, we started by looking at Acts 16 and looking how it was that Paul made his way to Macedonia. And remember, he had tried going any number of other places, um, and, we were, and we were told that Christ prevented him from going this place, or the Spirit prevented him from going that place. He wanted to bring the gospel into the province of Asia, and he kept getting redirected um, until he got redirected to Macedonia, and the gospel came to Greece, and that was really the first time it came to anywhere in Europe. Um, and why did it go there? Why was the Spirit turning him? Why was the Spirit turning him away from other places? Um, we don't know. The only thing we know is that he was doing that, right? That God does these things is what we know. Why he does them, he doesn't always make it clear to us. Um, but these things are all in his sovereign control, where the gospel goes and when the gospel goes there. Now, that's a reality for him to determine. That's not what we should sit back and do and just say, well, God will send it wherever he wants, whenever he wants, so we'll just wait back and... That's technically known in the business as hyper-Calvinism, and it's usually a bad thing. Um, almost always hyper-Calvinism is a bad thing. And sometimes at their worst, hyper-Calvinists have said, God will save who he's going to save. I don't need to do anything about it. He'll send the message where he wants to send it. It'll get there when he wants it to get there. And so we just sit back and wait for him to do it. Um, there's always a difference in, in describing what God does and what God knows and describing what he's called us to do. Right? And so what has he called the church to do? Preach the word to everyone. Bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. Right? So the fact that he's sovereign and it goes where it's to go, when it's to go, is all true. We confess that truth. But what he tells us to do is take it to the ends of the earth. So we have to do those things. Right? Um, and so we, we never want to lose sight of when we're confessing a truth about God and when we're talking about what God commands us to do. 
Um, and that's going to be a crucial concept to keep reminding ourselves of as we go through the canons of Dort. God tells us to do things. And when he says do something, you should do it. Write that down. It's the most important thing I'll say today. When God says do something, do it. Right? When God says repent, we need to repent. When God says believe, we need to believe. And if someone pops up and says, well, you can't believe unless God gives us a gift of faith, it's like, yes, that's true. But that doesn't in any way diminish that we go out in the world and say, believe. Right? We know what God is doing by his spirit in the background that has to happen for someone to believe, but that doesn't in any way, shape, or form change the fact that we as a church go into the world and say, believe, repent, and you'll be saved. Um, and so our confessing that truth doesn't in any way diminish the missionary zeal of the church. The church has always wanted to try to bring the gospel. Now, we've not always done that in a perfect way, um, but the church has always had an impulse to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. That's what we've been trying to do, bring the gospel where people don't know and proclaim the good news, the very joyous message of repentance and faith in Christ, that that leads to everlasting life by God's grace. Um, and so we recognize God's sovereignty in everything. We recognize God's sovereignty in everything. He directs where it goes and when it goes. Um, and that leads us to rejection of errors number nine. Now you would say, why are we going to the rejection of errors at the end of the doctrine? And certainly, why are we going to number nine? Shouldn't we go to number one first? Well, number nine kind of corresponds to this. So if you, if you page through the first set of doctrine, you'll come eventually to the rejections of errors um, that, that's at the back of article one. Um, and I want to think with you about paragraph 9. That's in Roman numerals, because, of course, those are the most helpful numerals for us. Um, but IX, if you don't know Roman numerals, 9 in the rejection of errors. So that's on page 903 in the back of the hymnal, or it's at page 266 in the Form and Prayers book. But this error in paragraph 9 corresponds to Article 3. Um, and it's rejecting this error. Now, this is also why the rejection of errors are kind of hard, because you'll notice that it, it begins, who teach, right? So it begins, who teach. But we're assuming that the beginning of it is the synod rejects the errors of those who teach. This is what these are, these are rejection of errors. So you're going to have to remember to read that in yourself at the beginning of every one of these. The synod rejects the errors of those who teach. So the synod in paragraph 9 rejects the errors of those who teach the following, that the cause of God, for God sending the gospel to one people rather than to another is not merely and solely God's good pleasure, but rather that one people is better and worthier than the other to whom the gospel is not communicated. There were those who taught, why does the word come to some people and not others? And there were those who taught because those people are better. Those people are more deserving than other people. This will be absolutely poisonous to the church if we start believing this. And that's why the sin is saying, we reject the error of anyone who would say, the gospel comes to certain people and not others because they're a better sort of people. Um, that, that flies contrary to everything that God's word teaches us. And it goes on to say, 
underneath that bolded the part in, is sort of in, in bold. Um, for Moses contradicts this when he addresses the people of Israel as follows. Behold, to Jehovah your God belong the heavens of the highest heavens, the earth and whatever is in it. But Jehovah was inclined in his affection to love your ancestors alone and chose their descendants after them, you above all people as it is this day. And also Christ, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if those mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Um, why does God choose to reveal the, the, to the people he chooses to reveal it? The only thing we can say is that it's from his good pleasure. It's his good pleasure. And in fact, if there's anything that's really clear from the Old Testament, is that God came to his people and repeatedly said, I did not choose you because you're a better sort of people. In fact, there are better sorts of people out there that I could have chosen. And there are times, you know, when, when God comes to Moses and says, you know what, I'm going to ruin this, I'm sick of this people. I'm going to destroy this people. I'm going to make a new people out of you. Um, because this people is stiff-necked and stubborn and I'm done with them. Right? It, God doesn't choose us because we're the best sort of people. He chooses us for reasons that are in him. His love to sinners. That's the only reason we know. His good pleasure where he says, I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy, I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. That's as far into it as we can get. And we must never, at the ch as the church, get into the business of thinking, we're better sorts of people, that's why the gospel came to us. And the church has not been always very good at that in the history of the church. Um, and it comes every time you read something in the history of the church that says, you know what, let's take the gospel to the savages. Um, you, you'll read that, and it makes you cringe every time you read it, because you know what they're saying is, we're not the savages, they're the savages, right? Um, that we're, we're the civilized, they're the savages, and we need to take the gospel and civilization to the savages. That says more about us than it says about the savages. That says about the false pride, and that's been poisonous to missions in certain places, because we've taken that attitude into the mission field that we're going to teach these savages how to live. And that's been a bad thing with the church. The church is not divided, the world is not divided between the civilized and the savages, the good people and the barbarians, or however else people have wanted to separate the world. The world is separated between the lost and the found. And if you're part of the found, why are you part of the found? Because God came and found you. Because the good shepherd went looking for you when you were lost and gathered you in. It, no, it has nothing to do with you being a better sort of person than other sorts of people. Um, and, and thanks be to God that the synod very clearly rejects that, any kind of notion of that. The gospel does not come to certain people because we're better people. The gospel comes to us solely out of the good pleasure of God. God did not turn Paul away from Asia because there was something wrong with the people in the province of Asia. Um, and that the people in Macedonia were a better sort of people. It was just in his good pleasure that he sent the gospel to Macedonia that the people there might be saved. And we should never fall into the trap of thinking that because the gospel's come to us and we've received it, we're a better sort of people. That's why I like Dr. Horton saying, you know, we're just beggars telling other beggars where to find bread. We're, we're no better than anybody else. We're just people on whom God has showered his grace. And we should never forget that we're just as needy as those other people are needy. And that should give us a heart for them.
not a sense of superiority, um, but a passion to see them come to the Lord and know the Lord as we have come to know him. Um, So we confess that the gospel comes to whomever God sends it at whatever time he sends it. It's a very joyous message. It tells how to be saved. And there's always a twofold response to the gospel. Um, So if we go back to page uh, 259, article 4, or uh, to page, sorry, to page 260, if you're using the little book in the hymnal, it's on page 897. I didn't get the pages for the little, little book. Is anyone using the little, little book? Should I do that too? What is it? 147. Okay. So if you're using the little, little book, it's 147. This all gets very confusing. Um, so are, can I just have a show of hands? Who's using the little, little book? Okay. Put your hands down. Who's using the hymnal? Okay. Who's using the, the medium-sized book? No, that's the medium-sized book, the Forms and Prayers book. All right, so even my terms are not helpful. All right, I'll try to remember to bring, bring all of the page references so that no one's left out, regardless of the size of the book you're using. Um, but if you're using the hymnal, it's 897. Or if you're using the Form and Prayers book, hardcover book, it's 260. Um, and if you're using the other book, it's 147. Okay, so that's Article 4. There's always a twofold response to the preaching of the gospel. There's always a twofold response to the preaching of the gospel. Um, and we read in Article 4 God's anger remains on those who do not believe this gospel. But to those who do receive it and embrace Jesus the Savior with a true and living faith, but those who do receive it and embrace Jesus the Savior with a true and living faith are delivered through him from God's anger and from destruction and receive the gift of eternal life. Um, it's a very joyous message. It promises life to everyone who believes it. But the fact of the matter is there's always two responses to the gospel. It either calls people to the Lord or it drives them away from him. Uh, That's always what happens when you bring the gospel. Um, We shouldn't be surprised when that happens. You've, You've had it happen if you've tried sharing the gospel with someone who just doesn't want to hear it. Um, the preaching of the gospel always has that effect. It drives people towards the Lord or it drives people away. Um, and that's just, oh, that's the reality of what will always happen whenever the gospel is preached. And notice that if, if the gospel is not received by someone, what is their condition? It's important the way it's phrased. God's anger remains on those who do not believe the gospel. Right? So we're not, we're not undecideds deciding whether we're going to be for God or against God, we're people who are under the wrath of God now. And the message of the gospel comes to people who are under the wrath of God and says to those who are under the wrath of God, flee from the coming destruction. Right? You're under the wrath of God now. That's what the seriousness of the situation is for everyone to whom the gospel comes. Right? Because that message of repentance first hits you with the, the notion you are under the condemnation of God as you stand right now. Unless you turn in repentance and faith, you are, you are going to be destroyed. Uh, there is a destruction coming. Um, and that's always sort of the scary part of the mission of, of preaching is that you bring this notion of judgment that's about to fall. Um, There's a powerful image of that in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress when they're talking about how the law operates. And I think it's Christian and faithful are talking. Um, But one says, yeah, I met a man on the road and he came and started beating me. 
and he beat me until I was unconscious. And when I woke up, he was still standing there, and he started beating me again. And he knocked me unconscious again. I woke up, he's still standing there. And I said to him, show me mercy. And he said, I don't know how to show you mercy. And it was Moses who he said. Now, poor Moses gets picked on in Pilgrim's Progress. Moses stands for the law. And his point was, all the law can do is beat you down. And if you cry out to the law, show me mercy, the law's response is, I don't know how to show you mercy. I can only tell you what to do. I can only condemn you. And then Christian said, yeah, I met him too, and he told me he'd burn my house down around me if I stayed here. Right? Now, that's not a happy, that's not a happy story to tell, right? But, but the guy said, you know, what was it that kept Moses from beating me up anymore? It was someone who passed by who had holes in his hands and holes in his feet and a hole in his side who told him to stop. Right? That's the beauty of the gospel. But there has to, when the gospel is preached and that, mission, that message of repentance is preached, it has to be preached in such a way that someone hears clearly, you're, you're, there's impending destruction coming and you need to flee or you'll be lost. That's why Martin Lloyd-Jones famously said when someone asked him, how do you get people to decide for Christ? He said, I don't get people to decide for Christ. I preach the gospel and they flee to Christ. Because if the gospel is properly preached, the law and the gospel, the whole word of God is properly preached, you understand where you stand if you don't repent. You understand where you stand if you don't believe that the wrath of God remains on you. You're under it now. You know, and that's why when the gospel does a beautiful work in coming to someone and the Holy Spirit works on their heart, you know, we read like in Acts 2, they're cut to the heart and they say, brothers, what must we do to be saved? They, that's someone who realizes the wrath of God is hanging over them and they need to get out from under it. Um, and that's the joyous part of the message. What do I need to do to get under, out from under this wrath that's coming? All you need to do is believe in the one who saved you from it. You don't have to you know, outfight Moses. You don't have to try to get out of the burning building. There's a savior. All you have to do is trust him, he'll save you. All you have to do is accept that gift of God with a believing heart. And the sad reality is that whenever you preach the gospel, whenever you share this message, there are people who are under the wrath of God who refuse to flee it. Who just say, no, I think I'll stay here and see if I can contend with Moses. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, I mean, Paul in Romans 1 talks about everyone is without excuse. You start out without excuse because you know there's a God, you know that, and you don't honor him as God. So there, there's a sense in which there's no one who can really say, I didn't know. Everyone is without excuse. Um, whether they really understand the whole, the whole weight of what they're doing um, remains to be seen. But certainly if someone is told this is how you flee from the wrath to come and you don't do it, then in the end of the day when the Lord comes, he'll say, didn't I say to you, flee from the wrath to come? Yeah, so... Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, well, Paul says we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So we, we don't want to admit what the truth is that we know. So that's part of the problem. We suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Another part of the problem is we, 
it calls on us to respond to God in a certain way. And those who are in the darkness, Jesus said, sometimes they don't come into light because they like the darkness more. Um, because the darkness says, and you know, Satan is deceitful. He says, this is how you really live. You know, there are people who say, I don't, want, I don't want to have to commit my life to the Lord because then I'm locked into what he wants and I want to do what I want. Um, and it's like, that's fine, but the way you want to live, it leads to destruction. If you really want to live, then you would repent and believe. So it's always, it's always hard to say exactly why, because I think for every person, there's, there's a part of it that they, that they say they don't agree with. Or, but the Lord's word says that what it all comes down to is they don't want the Lord. Um, they don't want what he offers. They don't see the problem as it is, and they suppress what they know in unrighteousness. So, yeah, I can't say why every individual doesn't or why it makes no dent. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's, and that's what we're going to get to in terms of what is the source of belief and unbelief? How do those two things how do those two things come? But it is very difficult for those of us who've had our eyes open to see the, the reality of what's going on. It's very hard to understand how someone could not want to do that. But Paul does say those things are spiritually discerned. Then unless the Lord opens our eyes to see them, we're not going to see them. No matter how much, how much someone bangs on the door to tell us, we're just not going to see them. So, right. Yeah. And that's what we're going to get to in the fifth article. It talks a little bit about that. Why do people believe and why, do they don't, why don't they believe? Um, so that's always the twofold response, right? Either you remain in your sin, but we kind of, we kind of piled on that heavily, so I don't want to just pass over the, the, the alternate, um, which is beautiful, that there are those who hear the gospel, and they, but they put their, their trust in it. Um, those who do receive it and embrace Jesus the Savior with a true and living faith are delivered through him from God's anger, from destruction, and receive the gift of eternal life. Um, it always accomplishes that purpose as well, um, that it calls people to life and they believe in Jesus, he rescues them, and they don't perish but have eternal life. Um, that's, that's the other response that we have to the gospel. So there's always a twofold response unbelief and faith. And so then Article 5 asks the question, why do some believe and some not believe? What, what are the sources of faith and, um, diso- of faith and unbelief? Um, and so that's, that's there right after Article 4. Article 5, the cause or blame for this unbelief as well as for all other sins is not at all in God, but in man. Faith in Jesus Christ, however, and salvation through him is a free gift of God. As scripture says, it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourself is a gift of God. Ephesians 2.8, likewise, it has been freely given to you to believe in Christ. Philippians 1.29. So there are only two options for responding to the gospel, belief or unbelief. And the first question is, who is to blame for unbelief? Um, who is to blame ultimately for unbelief? Remember we said the canons of Dort are always interested in talking about um, clearing God of any injustice and showing that God cannot be said to be at fault for anything that goes wrong in the world. Um, you can't blame God for your situation. Um, and so when people do not believe it's their own fault, 
in some way, shape, or form. They bear the blame for that the same way all other sins operate. That's a helpful thing to say, right? Um, because we, under, we understand that unbelief at its root is a sin. Um, it's a sin to not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that sin operates the way all other sins operate. Um, and so if I commit another kind of sin, I don't sit there and say, who's to blame for this? Right? Um, you know, when, when we're making prayer, our prayer of confession, we, we don't say, boy, this just happened to me and I don't really know how this happened. Um, no, I, I know that I did it. That's why I'm confessing it. I, I'm to blame for this. Um, when, I was a, when I was an attorney, you would come across people who'd been in prison and I noticed that almost everybody who talked about their offense would say, um, I caught this charge. A very common way of saying was, well, wh- why are you in prison? Well, I caught a 187. And it almost sounded like, you know, I caught it. It was just floating around out there. And it's like, it was like the flu, you know, I just sort of caught it. Um, and it's like, well, no, you committed, you know, if you were guilty, you committed that crime, right? That, and and that's, what we, that's what we acknowledge when we come confessing our sins. I've committed this crime. I'm to blame for this, and I need forgiveness for it. Um, and we understand that those sins are our fault, that it's not at all in God, but in us. Um, and my dad commenting on the canons of Dort said, this article stresses a point repeated several times in the canons. Fallen sinners bear the responsibility for their sins, whether rebellion or unbelief. The sovereignty of God is not at all the cause of sin. You can't lay this at God's doorstep. Next question people always want to ask is, how is that possible? If God is sovereign and he's in control of everything, then how come when I do evil things under his control that that's not his fault? Um, now we have 10 minutes. And in, <laughs> and in 10 minutes, I'm going to explain the whole thing. No, I'm not going to explain the whole thing. This is a huge debate among, among reformers. How does this work out? How do we work this out? Um, that's a huge debate. The canons aren't, aren't interested in getting into that debate at this point um, and saying we have to confess that these things are true when they're clearly taught in Scripture. We can't always work them out to our own satisfaction. There are ways people try to explain them, and that's not to say we should never you know, try to probe the depths of what we can know from the Scriptures, but the canons right here are just interested in confessing what's true. And there are two things that are true. God is sovereign, and you're responsible for your sin. Now, people always say, no, but I want to bring those two together. Go ahead. But I'm going to tell you, it's a hard question to answer, and it's because God is God and you're not. Um, And you're always going to reach that trouble. If you don't believe me, read Romans 9. You reach that trouble. You know, well, he hardened Pharaoh's heart, yes. And so Pharaoh... Heart was hardened by God, right. And you can't resist God's will, correct. But Pharaoh's to blame, yes. Ah. I don't, how is this working out? And what does Paul do? He says, who are you to answer back to God? Are you really surprised that you can't figure out what God knows and how God's sovereignty works? I mean, it's kind of ridiculous, isn't it, if we think about it, Um, the function of the canons is not to answer into this exhaustively. We're going to get to, as we elaborate the doctrine, as we get into the doctrine, we're going to say some more things about it. But the purpose here is just to confess what's true. God is sovereign, and when you sin, it's your fault. Now, 
Taken as independent statements, those two things are not hard, right? Do I have to really convince a lot of people that God is sovereign? Hopefully not here. Um, and that you're, you're to blame for your sins? I hope that's not hard to convince you. But it also shouldn't be too surprising to us that we can't reconcile those things in our finite minds. How those things could be true. I liked what someone said. He said, what shall we do with the problem? I'm afraid we shall have to do with it something that is not very pleasing to our pride. I'm afraid we shall just have to say that we cannot solve it. Is it so surprising that there are some things that we do not know? God has told us much. He has told us much even about sin. He has told us how at infinite cost, by the gift of his son, he has provided a way of escape from it. Yes, God has told us much. Is it surprising that he has not told us all? I do not think so, my friends. After all, we are but finite creatures. Is it surprising that there are some mysteries which God in his infinite goodness and wisdom has hidden from our eyes? Is it surprising that there are some things in his counsels about which he has bidden us to be content not to know, but instead just to trust him who knows all? You know, said that J. Gresham Machen, who was a great theologian and hardly someone who can be accused of just not wanting to investigate difficult truths. But he says, you know, it really shouldn't surprise us. Um, and if we get to the point where we just have to say, you know what, you have to take God's word for it. That shouldn't be a hard thing for God's people to do. Either way, to say, yeah, God knows things I don't know. And when he tells me this is the way it is, I should just accept that that's the way it is and be content with that answer. Um, we're going we're gonna, to, as we go on, we're going to talk more about these things, but it's important as a confessional level to say two things important. God is sovereign and you're responsible for your own sin. And there's no way of getting around either one of those two truths. God is not the author of evil. And any evil that, we're, that is in us, we are guilty of. And so no one, no one will be able to say, when they stand before the judgment seat of God, this is your fault. Um, they'll say, no, woe to me, I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live amongst the people of unclean lips. This is my fault. Um, not God's fault. So who's responsible for faith? I must be, right? If I'm responsible for my sin, I must be responsible for my faith. No, who's responsible for faith? God. God is responsible for our faith. So the cause of blame for this unbelief as well as for all other sins is not at all in God but man. Faith in Jesus Christ, however, and salvation through him is a free gift of God. As the scripture says, it's by grace you've been saved through faith and not of yourself it's a gift of God. Believers do not receive any credit or merit for their believing. God alone gives this gift of faith and ensures its full fruition in the elect. Why do I believe? Because God gave it to me. These things are spiritually discerned, and without him, I couldn't do it. I wouldn't see it. It would be all black to me, except that he shines the light on my heart so that I can see it. It's his gift to us. And so what this, ha- what this helps us do is it helps us to keep us from blaming God for unbelief as if that's his fault. It's not. It's the sinner's fault um, that they don't believe. If you want to track it back, it's because the sinner plunged themselves into unbelief. 
as sinners, we could see God. Once we sinned, we couldn't see God anymore. And so we can't really blame him that we don't see him. It's our fault. When it comes to faith, we must never say, I believed. I'm just a better kind of person. I'm not as dumb as those people who turn their back. No, it's a sheer act of God's grace. It's a gift of God, as is clearly pointed out in Ephesians 2, verse 8. That's why we have to always go on and say what Ephesians goes on to say. It's not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. By grace you've been saved through faith, and that's not of yourself. It's not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Right? There's a purpose clause there, right? So that no one will boast. God doesn't want people boasting that they saved themselves. What does that do? It robs him of his glory. The only reason you're saved is because God planned a salvation for you. Jesus came and accomplished that salvation for you. The Holy Spirit gave you the gift of faith that you would see Jesus in faith and live. And the triune God preserves you in that salvation to the end. Faith is his gift as well as everything that flows from it. Right? Faith in Jesus Christ, as the article says, however, and salvation through him is the gift of God. The faith is his gift. The salvation is his gift. It's all of him. It's not ours. We can't take credit for it. It's a gift. Why do people not believe and remain in their condemnation? It's their own faults. Why do we live? It's not because of what we've done. It's because of what God's done. He gives the gift of faith. He does the saving. Um, And so we should never lose sight of that. That should cause God's people to be tremendously thankful and tremendously humble um, and to continue to pray for those who are lost. Um, We should continue to talk to people, try to use the opportunities to share the gospel where we can, but we have to recognize that you can't talk someone into the kingdom. Um, and people can beat themselves up all the time because they think, you know, there was some better way to put that or some better way to preach it or some angle I should have taken that I didn't take and had I taken it, then they'd believe. These are things that are spiritually done. Um, And God can do those things regardless of how hard the heart is. And so while there's life, we should never give up hope for the people that we love and the people we know that we would love to see them see Jesus. And what is it going to take for them to see Jesus? It's going to take the gift of God. It's going to take him giving the gift of faith. So you're going to have times to talk to them and it's good to talk to them and, and the gospel needs to be preached. But there are also times to talk to God about them and ask God to intervene for them, uh, to save them. And there are people that can testify, I prayed for years and years and years, um, praying for people and almost having given up hope, and they've come to faith in the Lord. Um, And so we want to always hold out that hope that the gift of God can be given to the hardest of hearts. Um, And when we can talk to them, that's great, let's talk to them. But we can't talk to them, let's talk to God. Um. I'll end with this, but I remember a 
reading a book about ministry and it, and it said, you know, when you're visiting the dying as a minister, how do you minister to the dying? Because there's lot, oftentimes not a lot you can say to them that they're going to hear. It said, well, you know what? When you can be a preacher, be a preacher. But when you can't be a preacher, be a priest. I thought, what on earth does that mean? Um, and what he said was, what it means is intercede for them. Jesus as a priest came and offered an offering for us. He died and offered the offering that sets us free from sin, but he also always lives to intercede for us. There's going to be a limited amount of time we can talk to people about the gospel. There's a limited amount of time I get to preach. I have a lot more time to pray. Um, and so let's be about the business also of interceding for the lost, that we might see the Lord give them the gift of faith, that they might see these things and repent and believe and have life in his name. All right, let's close in prayer together. Father in heaven, thank you for this time. Thank you for our ability to reflect again on how desperate our situation was without you, that we lived our lives in malice and envy, hating you and hating one another. But when the goodness and kindness of Christ appeared, you saved us, and not because of what we'd done, but because of his sacrifice. And so, Lord, we're thankful for the gift. Help it never to be a source of pride for us, recognizing that it's entirely a gift of yours. Um, help us to continue to lift up those who are lost in unbelief. Help our hearts to break for them and desire to share the gospel with them. But may we also continue to intercede for them. Lord, here there are people who've been praying for people they know and love who've not embraced Christ by faith. And we our hearts are broken for them, and we would dearly love to see them come to you and, and be saved. And so we pray even now that you would give them the gift of faith, that they might see Christ even as we have seen him and embrace him and have life in his name. Help us in these things, Lord, and grant them according to your will by the power of your spirit. And hear us, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, thank you.